Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Well, today we come to the end of our series, Reasons to Believe, which has been all about spiritual belief, really putting our trust and our confidence in the truth of God's story as revealed in His Word, the Christian Bible. And one of the presuppositions we've worked off is is that Christianity is not superstitious. It is a reasonable faith system. You don't have to check your brain at the door. It's not just for weak-minded people who are non-thinkers or simpletons or or just go on emotion and blind faith or just tradition. You just kind of go through it. Rather, if you have questions and doubts, there are reasons to believe. Uh, Christianity is really a comprehensive worldview that doesn't shy from the hard questions. We've looked at the question of evolution, where role is that in creation? Why is there evil in the world? Is, is, is religion just kind of rules and regulations? Rather, the Bible, the story of God, presents very coherent and logical answers to many of the big questions of life. And yet, in the midst of that, many of us still have doubts. Some of, some of our questions lead to more questions, Carol. If evil is responsible for the brokenness we see in our world, and God's all-powerful, all-loving, then why doesn't He just wipe it out? The reality is, if we're honest, faith is an imperfect thing. We see things like miracles of the children, and they encourage our belief, and then we see the death of other people that, 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 that just go, what the... A lot of people, I think, make the mistake of assuming Christianity works this way. Kind of like there's this continuum, and on the far end are kind of like agnostics. People like who have pretty much doubt the existence of God, because they have so many questions that they can't even reconcile with this idea of God. But as those questions start to get answered, people think like, well, then they become kind of like a skeptic. So there are less questions, because I have some questions, but there might be something to this. And then as those get answered, people think like, I have less questions about God, so now like I'm actually seeking Him out. And then once all those questions are suddenly answered and all the doubts are reconciled. Bing! I believe. And then the rest of your life, there are no more questions. Isn't that just how the journey goes? Not so much. Um, The the reality is, um, you know, that's not how it works. If it were, no one would be a believer. And that may be surprising for some of you to hear, especially coming from a pastor, but it's true. At times, I have many doubts about God. There are things that have happened in my life, in the lives of those I love and care about, which I still struggle to make sense of. I don't have answers for anything, and that's just being honest. And the reality is we all have doubts. We all have questions. In fact, are there anyone else here? Raise your hand if you have questions. You have questions for God. You have some doubt. I'm in good company. Wow, the majority of people. What I've found in talking with many of you, just being human, is that our doubts and questions that hold us back from belief typically fall into one of three categories. Hurts. Habits and hang-ups. The idea of hurts is, is, in other words, something's happened in your life that's wounded you and you doubt God because of it. Why was I abused as a child? Um, why, why did my spouse or, or, my, or my father abandon me? God, if you're there, why did you let that happen? Help me understand that. Or I look sometimes on the connection cards that you have in your bulletin. People write prayer requests. Last week someone said, uh, I could believe in God if I could understand why he let my younger sister die all of a sudden. Or, or if you might think, actually, you might look at the church and say, well, if Jesus is so good, then how come his church is so mean? <laughs> Maybe you've been judged or you've been hurt in the past and intolerant Christians kind of seem, kind of make it difficult to follow God, you know? Personal hurts, pains you've experienced, losses you've endured often keep us from believing. Secondly, some of the habits we have in our lives are in conflict with the gospel of Christ, the life that God calls us to in his story. And we balk at, re- at believing because it's scary. 
Because we get the message of Christ. We get that to truly live, we may have to die. (laughs) We have to be open to change or an open part of our lives to God's power and his authority. And and that's scary because, A, we're not sure we may want to give that area of our life up. (laughs) Or, B, we're not sure we'd even be able to make a difference in that area if we tried. So certain habits keep us from believing. Like uh, someone, a girl said to me a few weeks ago, "So, so if I believe in Jesus, does that mean I have to move out from living with my boyfriend? Or, or you might say, you know, can I be gay and still follow Jesus? Or, or do I have to change first and then I can believe? Or you may say, well, I can't, you know, come to God right now until I clean up my act. Because, dude, habits, I mean, you, until, I, until I get sober or break my addiction to porn or fill in the blank, I'm enslaved. I don't have the freedom to follow myself, let alone God most days. Personal habits, lifestyle issues often keep us from committing fully to follow God and trusting Him with every area of our lives, including very personal ones like our sexuality, for instance. The third thing I found that keeps us from believing are hang-ups. It could be philosophical objections, maybe of theological questions that you can't like reconcile like in your own mind. You're like, I like Jesus, but it's this whole like Jesus is the only way part that's troubling. It seems so narrow-minded. Isn't that like that, that kind of exclusivist thinking seems like it's the source of so much violence and intolerance in our world today? Or, or maybe you're like, someone came up to me and said, uh, I, the reason I can't believe in Jesus is because of Nellie. And I was like, Nellie the rapper? They're like, no, Nellie my grandmother. Uh, she's, a, she's the sweetest, saintless woman you'd ever met, and you, she had nothing good in this life. And so you're going to tell me that just because she didn't believe in Jesus, she's going to hell? I can't believe in a God like that. That's a hang-up for me. Or maybe you're Catholic or you're Jewish, and the idea of like, whoa, 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 so you're saying you need to, trading in my childhood religion for a relation, a personal relationship with God, that feels like a betrayal. You mean I'd have to like trade in my heritage, my family, because they'd see that as a betrayal of who they raised me to be. Personal hang-ups keep us often from putting our full trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the personal Savior of the world. Hurts, habits, hang-ups, we all have them. So there may be good reasons to believe, but there are a lot of very real reasons to doubt (laughs) or keep us from believing as well. But the reality is this. Despite what you have been told or assumed, true faith does not equal the absence of doubt or questions. This continuum where you move steadily up this chart and you systematically eliminate those questions one by one, you pick them off until nothing remains and then you believe and you ice skate through life with complete confidence. No more questions of God. It ain't true. Actually, more importantly... It's not biblical. It's not how Jesus himself treated the people who came to him struggling with their own hurts and their habits and their hang-ups. He didn't shame or stiff-arm people or be like, you have no faith. He actually welcomed them and engaged the faith that they did have. You're sitting here today with a certain amount of faith. It may not be 100%. Maybe you're close. You're like 98% there. Or maybe you're like, I had a heck of a morning, dude. I like lost my faith with the kids in the minivan on the way here. I thought what we would do is wind up this series at how Jesus addressed the doubts of people. People who had questions, people who had a hard time believing or were hung up by personal issues in their own lives. So let me invite you to do this. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. It's on page 746 in your Bibles. And there's a story here about a few people who really struggled with doubts. They had questions for God, and it was largely out of a personal hurt that they had experienced, and maybe you identify with. This is, a, this is it's, it's a, the, uh, the death of Lazarus, and, and it's a story about a, a woman named Mary and Martha. They were sisters. They had a brother named Lazarus. And the deal is this. They were very good friends with Jesus. Jesus often stayed with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus when he was out ministering. But Lazarus got very sick, so sick, in fact, that he was dying. And they knew he was going to die. But good news, Jesus 
who we believe is two miles away. So we're going to go get him and bring him here and he can save our brother Lazarus. I mean, we've got God in the flesh. He's going to save our brother Lazarus. Now look what happens. This is amazing. Verse 5. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet, when they went and told him, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So you catch what's going on here. Jesus, the Son of God, is just a stone's throw away from these people who we love. They said, good, our brother's dying. We can get Jesus. He can heal him and prevent him from dying. And Jesus says, okay, and just sits there. Waits two days. And something terrible happens. The natural thing. Lazarus dies. Look at verse 17. It says, on his arrival, (laughs) Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So in other words, Jesus dilly-dallied and didn't come, and Lazarus died four days dead. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Verse 21, key verse. And she said this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. Let me give you the New Jersey enhanced translation. Where were you? I came to you, God. I ate a request of you. My brother was dying and you let him die. You didn't do anything. Where were you? If you had been here, you can underline that phrase in your Bible. Maybe you identify with Martha living in the land of if, because you have doubts about God's existence. You're like, well, God, if you're there, yeah, why aren't you responding? I keep asking things of you, but you don't do anything. My prayers kind of bounce off the ceiling. If you were here, why don't you do something about my marriage? Or my son who's going off the rails? Don't you care? Maybe you doubt God's goodness. God, if you're good, why would you allow fill in the blank to happen? How would you fill in that blank? Maybe you're going through something right now in life, a loss of a relationship, you lost your job, your health, your loss of health, uncertainty, and you can't make sense of it. It is a source of serious pain and grief. And you're like, why? Why'd you allow that to happen? If you had been here, God, you could have prevented it. You know, God, if you're powerful, why don't you do something? Anyone ever, you guys watching this earthquake in China? See this earthquake in China that happened? Literally in moments, tens of thousands of people wiped from the face of the earth, dead. Why? Where's God? If you have been here, God, whenever senseless suffering touches down our life, we identify with Martha and her question of God, if you'd been here, where are you? And the reality is, that happens all the time, more than we admit. It happened um, about 10 years ago with my grandfather. Um... This, is, uh, this goes without saying. It's a little tough for me to talk about, but I'll just kind of share it with you. Um, it's amazing because 10, year, 10 years old is still as real to me today. My grand, I love my grandfather dearly. He was like a saint. He is as close as you get to a saint. The guy wore a three-piece suit to the beach. It's really weird. <laughs> but like, that was like that generation. And he was involved in church in, in Patterson, and, and, and uh, he actually wore a three-piece suit every Sunday and would take this beat-up little van to the inner city 
and, and pick up kids and take them to Sunday school. He did this for like 50 years. And our, my grandfather was an incredible man. It's kind of how our family um, became Christians, and, and it kind of flowed out of him. And uh, he was an incredible guy. Had great uh, success in life, working, da, da, da. And nothing ever happened in our family until he turned 65 years old. And at 65 years old, we were out celebrating his birthday. We were having a birthday dinner at a restaurant. All of a sudden, my grandfather stiffened up, and he started slurring his words, and he fell over, hit his head on the table. He had a stroke. And uh, right on the nose, 65. And I remember, because I was sitting next to him, rode in the ambulance, and we were like, oh, my gosh, th- th- things upset you. And, and, and he made a miraculous recovery. He actually recovered from that stroke. Within six months, he suffered his second stroke. It was like he turned 65 and like all the wheels fell off the bus. I'm not trying to scare you seniors. It just happened with my, with my grandfather. His second stroke in, in, in six months, and, 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 and this one left him partially paralyzed. Um, but he returned back to health, and it was amazing because when he was in the hospital, we were like, they, were, they were like, he may not make this. And so we started preparing. You know how you kind of prepare for that? And, um, and they were like, but he's doing much better today. I don't know. And he came home. Well, one year later, he was, uh, my grandmother had him kind of in a wheelchair and she was helping move him to the uh, shower because she kind of became the caretaker. And he was still sharp and everything. And he had another stroke and fell and hit his head on the, ba- in the bathtub. And that was the one that we thought was it. They told us it was it. We went to the hospital prepared to say our goodbyes. And we prayed, God, be merciful, you know, to grandpa in, in, his, in his passing. And on the next day, we don't know what happened. <laughs> But Andrew Van Emberg, he's doing fine and he's asking for, for, for uh, Philly cheesesteak. Uh, he's like, talk, we're like, oh my gosh, God like answered our, we didn't, weren't even praying that way, but he's okay. Three strokes in a series of 18 months and every time my grandfather was okay, which makes the events of November 19th, 1997 all the more surreal and disturbing. Um, I was teaching at the time as a high school English teacher over in Summit and got a call from my wife, Colleen. And she said, you need to leave class now and, and, and come home. I said, what, what happened? And she said, his grandpa. I said, did he have, I said, you know, did he have another stroke? And she said, no, he died. And I was like, oh, you know. But he had, had a, and I was like, you know, so many things had happened. It was kind of like, all right. We knew one of these was finally going to get him. And she goes, no, he didn't have a stroke. He didn't have a heart attack. I can't even explain it. Just, just come. And I rushed home and got in the car and we drove down. They were living in Tom's River at the time, one of those, one of those retirement villages where the streets are this wide. It's called Leisure Village. And so we got in our car, drove down, you know, Parkway, exit 82A. We're flying down there. And my, my, my colleague's like, you don't, you don't even understand what, what happened. And when we pulled up, I think it was when I saw the yellow police tape that said crime scene around their um, retirement home that I was like, this, what is going on here? The way the police explain what they pieced it together, what happened, is that morning around 8 a.m., my grandmother, who was his caretaker, got, she got him cleaned up and shaved and showered and all that, in his wheelchair, wheeled him into the front room. It was the bedroom kind of where they had TV. Wheeled him into the front room in, in, in the wheelchair. And, um, and as she turned, she said, she says, just remain here. And she turned on the People's Court because he watched the People's Court every morning. People's Court, Wheel of Fortune, then Jeopardy. Like, watch them all in a row. And wheeled him in there. And she turned around and said, I'm going to get you a cup of coffee. And as she walked out of the room, boom! Heard a tremendous, what she said sounded like a, like a meteor hit. The way the police explain it is that the woman across the street who was 85 years old had gotten in her car in her driveway and she was going to CVS to get her pills filled. And as an 87-year-old, she put her car in reverse and somehow got confused. And she stepped on the accelerator believing it was her brake and when it didn't stop, she pushed harder so that her 1978 Buick went down her driveway, across her lawn, 
across a five-lane street, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the retirement village, up my grandparents' lawn, and crashed rear-end into the front of my grandparents' retirement home and killed my grandfather. That's how the police explain it. So, let's just put it all together. My grandfather of 65 years, who had three strokes, survived three strokes, was run over in his bedroom watching people's court. You can laugh. It, it, there's, there's just, it, it's shocking. You won't be impolite every time I share this. People just go, oh, I'm sorry. I do, what? It is surreal. And when we got there, my grandmother had literally walked out of the room and she, she you know, two minutes earlier, she would have been killed too. We all have events in our lives that when they happen, we struggle to make sense of this. And we say, God, if you had been here, where were you in that? What? What? This is what Martha felt like. And when Jesus came, she said, Jesus, if you had been here, if you were God, if you were in control, this wouldn't have happened. And in verse 25, or verse 23, Jesus says what I think is one of the more insensitive things that Jesus ever said. He said to Mary, Martha, he said, your brother will rise again. I think that's horribly insensitive. It's like the people who said, well, you know, Tim, your grandfather, um, you know, at least he didn't suffer. Uh, you know, he didn't have a fourth stroke and suffer through that. At least they, what, at least a Buick came through and ran him over in his bedroom while watching people's court. That ain't helping me. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, I understand you love your brother, but he will rise again. And she says, I, I know he'll rise again. I know afterlife, that whole thing. And then Jesus says this to her. No, 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 no. He who, what, believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives, and let's read it, believes in me will never die. Do you what? Believe this. In the middle of her question, where are you, God? Jesus has a question. What do you believe about what you see right now? Because I understand what you see and why you doubt. And in the midst of the wreckage you see all around you, I'm asking you a fundamental question. What do you believe about this? Do you believe that this is it? The yellow tape around the house. Lazarus in the tomb. Do you believe that the death of your brother, which could have been prevented, is the verdict on God? In other words, Jesus invites us to believe, shockingly, in the midst of our doubts and questions, not after they're put to rest. When we encounter a hurt or a habit or a hang-up in our life, it's kind of like this. You ever see something like this? This is a needlepoint. It's a tapestry. Maybe you have one in your house. You've seen one in a museum. I'm showing you the backside of it. Can you get kind of a close-up of that? And if you've ever seen this, it kind of actually looks like a mess. You kind of see this, like all these random like threads kind of you know pulled in here. It's not very beautiful. All it looks is like this kind of like random tangle that looks like roadkill kind of. And when something comes in our life and hits down that doesn't make sense, life looks like this because all we can see are these. It's tangled random, jumbled threads. There's no rhyme or reason, and there's no coherent picture to pull it together or make sense of it. Maybe that's how your life feels. 
It's this painful, random, jumble experience. It doesn't make sense. Maybe that's how you view certain events that have happened to you or how you view the world. This is actually how I felt when my grandfather died. That's how I feel whenever I hear of things like tsunamis or, or the earthquake that killed 20,000 people. It seems so random. And if, if a loving, all-powerful God is right here, why doesn't he do something? But here's a twist. This is the perspective. This is the perspective we are given right now on earth. This is, it's almost like we're looking at the backside. This is all we can see. It's very limited. We only see the underside of this story that God's telling, the tapestry he's weaving. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says this. He says, now we see but a poor reflection. In other words, it's dim, it's blurry what's going on. It's like, a, But then we will see face to face. It will reveal, be revealed to you. But right now, this is all you get. Your view of life is obscured. You can't see what's on the other, I'm not showing you, what's on the other side. From our vantage point, we can't see the full picture that God's weaving. In the Middle Ages, tapestries like these took decades to produce. Think about that. Now they mass produce them. But decades, painful, needle after needle, thread after thread into canvas. And one day, Paul's like, you're going to see what the picture is on the other side. It will become clear from God's perspective. But right now, this is what you get. And Jesus, in the midst of this, says, I want to invite you to believe that this is not all there is to it. I, I want you, in the midst of your doubts and questions, to believe that on the other side there's a bigger picture, not after I reveal it to you. Because that's what faith is. Believing in what we can't see. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is literally defined this way. Let's read it together. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and what? Certain of what we do not see. In the midst of our hurts and habits and hang-ups, God says, I want you to trust what you can't see. And believe that on the other side of this, your father is working something beautiful. That there's a bigger picture going on here. And the threads of your life are just one part of it. They may seem random or meaningless, but they actually have eternal meaning and purpose in God's tapestry. And that should fill you with hope and actually in the midst of your questions and doubts, not give you answers, but I'm inviting you to faith. Not after the miracle, not after your request, but prior to having all the answers to your questions. And I understand that may seem like a stretch for some of you. That in itself is a huge leap of faith because you may be like, okay, why should I give God the benefit of the doubt? Why should I trust God is working good when all I see are pain and suffering and brokenness all around me? And that's a great question. Why trust God? Why give him the benefit of the doubt? And the answer is found in Jesus' response here in verse 33. Would you look at this? When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus, what? Wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And we learned something incredible here. That in the midst of our hurts, the things in life that run us over and wound us, God cares. What troubles us troubles God. I mean, the first shocker of this whole thing is that the Christian God is not threatened by our questions or doubts. It's not like Mary says, if you had been here, where were you? And Jesus is like, how dare you question me? He allows it. God's big enough. And in the second one is this. 
our inabilities and struggles to make sense of life moves God. In other words, he sees the hurts that trouble us and he is personally stirred, grieved, touched. He actually identifies with our sorrow, our confusion, whatever you're going through, our loss, what troubles you, troubles him. He cares not only enough to identify with our pain, but actually to enter into it personally. And folks, in the first century, this was a scandalous thing. It was unheard of. Jesus, what Jesus' response contrasted with the Greek concept of God popular in the first century. It said, God has no emotions and no messy involvement with humans. And here you see like compassion, sorrow, empathy, indignation. And the Christian God says, I'm not only actually interested in your doubts, questions, and feelings, I identify with them because I'm going to become flesh and experience the same hurts and the same losses and outrages and things in this life that make you go, hmm, or ah, I know some of you have experienced losses you will never make sense of this side of heaven. You were abused or neglected as a child. You lost your spouse or they walked out. You lost somebody you loved prematurely. Or your relationship broke up and ended and God says, understand something. What has hurt you hurts me too. I'm devastated by what devastates you. And it was never my plan for you to experience that. I, I created you for a perfect world. I created you for perfect relationships, not the brokenness of this one. And be certain of this, I care. I'm grieved. I'm deeply troubled. Shortest verse in the Bible is also the most shocking. John 11:35. Jesus wept. Some translations render it, Jesus burst into tears. And that image of the God of the universe, the sovereign God of all creation, is so, weeping is so different than the small g gods of all other world religions. Most uh, deities don't identify with the human predicament, certainly no desire to enter into it. I mean, think about it, right? Think about like Buddhism, the impersonal all-soul of Buddhism. It's nothing personal. God isn't even a, a, a person. He's just kind of this, this force out here. And so nothing is personal. Or Hindu karma. Karma says this, what goes around what? Comes around. In other words, your grandpa... Maybe you thought he was a saint, but he must have done something. What goes around comes around. The wrathful God of Islam that says bad things happen to rule breakers, bad people. And the Christian God, in response to human and suffering, what's his response? He what? He weeps. He cries. He meets us in the midst of our struggles and our hurts. But that, understand something. Don't go soft at this moment. Like, oh, Jesus is with... No. You understand something. Would you circle two phrases right now in your Bible? Go ahead. You can write in the Bible with your pen. Circle these phrases. Deeply moved and troubled. There's a Greek word for deeply moved that will change your thinking about everything. It rocked my world to understand this. The Greek word for deeply moved is embri-maomai. Can we all say this? Embri-maomai. And it literally translates to snort like a horse. That's the, that's the verb. Embrimaomai. It suggests that Jesus was so struck, he didn't just go, oh, I'm just... This sorrow mixed with anger when he looked at what he saw. Almost like a snort. A righteous indignation. In other words, when he looked at Lazarus and the death and the loss of that brother, it stirred up something in him that said... This is not the way this is supposed to be. 
And that's what gets stirred up in us when we see things in our world and the pain and the brokenness in our gut. We go, this is not right. I had that experience channel surfing one night. Watching, you know, watching cable channels like late at night, just kind of cruising through in a sports area. And on comes this documentary on CNN about sexual slavery in Bangladesh. And uh, these reporters go undercover. I'm just kind of watching this thing because they're like doing an undercover camera thing. And they walk into this, this, this underground bordello in Bangladesh, a city slum, where Bangladeshian girls uh, of ages 6 through 8 are kidnapped and drugged and sold into sexual slavery for the tourist trade. And in this camera, they go around and showing these squalid conditions. And you, and you saw these, these girls, six to eight years old, sitting on these, these mattresses, and they're just hollow-eyed because they're, they're drugged. And the, and the, the exploitation, the abuse, it was, it was disturbing. And I'm like a guy, you know, like, you know, I don't get moved by a lot of stuff. You see a lot of stuff on TV. And I was like, they explained how tourists and pedophiles would come and pay $10 an hour to do whatever they wanted to these little girls. And I was watching this, and, and it wasn't just painful to see. Like, actually, I thought of my own daughter. And actually, I actually started crying watching TV. To know that there are like children in the world somewhere being exploited like this, and in in you know, and something very weird happened because I, as I'm watching this, and the, I noticed my jaw starting to clench, my fist was starting to clench. Why well, I have snot pouring down my face? I mean, this is like, a, and I was overwhelmed by this sense of not just sorrow but outrage. It was like I wanted to jump through the TV and run into that house and, 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 and thrash those men and scoop these girls in, in your arms and just rescue it and put an end to it all. Just like, it was like, Ember Moe, It was like sorrow mixed with moral outrage. Jesus was deeply moved by what he saw. He said, this is not the way. God created the world to work. I know it's sometimes all we see around us today. But to Jesus, as he walked this earth, when he looked at pain and suffering and disease and death, he was like, this is an aberration. And for my, oh my, it upsets me. It is an offense to me. This is not what my father had in mind for his, his creation, for his children. I, he created you for life, for eternal life. A perfect relationship with God, with one another, but sin, brokenness, introduced by the devil, embraced by us in the garden, it has ruined everything. And when Jesus came face to face with the wreckage of sin and death, it moved him. And in Bramah, it fired him up. He took it personally and ignited something in him to do something about it, to end it forever. This will not go on forever. And again, this is the most, to me, the most compelling reason to believe because the Christian God, Jesus Christ, doesn't just feel for us. He says, I'm going to enter into it. And whatever it costs, I will end it. Watch what Jesus does here in verse 38. Look at this. Jesus once more, what? Deeply moved. He came to the tomb and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. Don't you smell this? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you what? Believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here that they may what? Believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. And his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Folks, I don't know what you have heard about Christianity or what you think the message of Christianity, but the message of Christianity is a message of a cross and an empty tomb. And it shatters our paradigms. It dares you to say, do you believe that on the other side of this, God is weaving something beautiful? There is something more breathtaking and beautiful and that the random life and pain that you have experienced is but one random thread of it, but it will be revealed to you. But before the tomb comes the cross. That when Jesus enters into the... Do you believe? When Jesus enters into the wreckage of our lives, it is to heal our hurts, it is to break our habits, our hang-ups, and he alone has the power to bring us back to life. See, Lazarus, folks, was a foreshadowing of what Christ would enter into, and no doubt it moved him, because it was weeks later where he went through his own moment. When he said, God, where are you? Why have you for... Saken me. And three days later, resurrection. I think about that moment on that day to his disciples what life looked like when he was nailed to the cross. Most of them lost their faith and their belief. They actually just went back to their business. They were like, let's just go fishing. This didn't work. I did. That's where he finds them. They're back fishing. But three days later, God revealed that he was working on the other side to not just heal but work something extraordinarily beautiful and bring new life, not just to Lazarus, not just back to Jesus, Jesus having his life back, but you, eternal life for anyone who believes to reveal his plan. There are two sides, folks, to a tapestry. This is actually an old Celtic tapestry. Take a look at that. But the story of redemption begins, belief begins in the tangled threads of our lives. That's why Christ died and rose again, to take what's been broken and tangled and seemingly random and reconnect them to the larger purposes of God. In other words, why did Christ die? Christ died for three reasons. To heal your hurts. Christ died to conquer the habits that keep you in the grave. Plus, Tim, I'm like powerless. I don't have the power. You don't. This is why Christ died and was raised to life, to raise you to new life. Christ died to answer our hang-ups so we can move beyond or just our objections we have because instead of answers, he gives us something better. Trust. We can actually trust the heart of God because this God doesn't stand by and say, well, you know, work it out, I guess. He enters into it. He sees the mess of disordered, broken, painful humanity and says, I will enter into it to end it and bromeal my myself once and for all. And the cross is the demonstration of my love for you. The cross says, I see what's gone wrong and all of my compassion, all of my anger are aroused by what you are experiencing. But I'm going to give my son to change the ball game forever. This is Jesus, folks. This is the God of all creation. Not Buddha, not Muhammad. Jesus is Lord and this God is your father. Do you 
believe this? That's the question he asks Martha before he takes one step forward in which he confronts with each of us. It's the central question of of the Christian faith. Do you believe this? Do you believe that, yes, this is painful, but I am holding off because I want to get as many people as I can and raise them back to life? This is not all there is. On the other side, there's resurrection. There's an eternal story that God's weaving and putting back together for good, for good to those who love God. He doesn't waste one thread of our lives. Do you believe that? Folks, honestly, be totally candid with, candid with you. I think certainty is overrated. You can have a lot of answers and logic for your mind, but trust, on the other hand, is the currency of relationship. I mean, what kind of father would you rather have? One who explains everything to you, you know, every question with a rational black and white, you know, explanation, or one that you knew you could trust completely because he's loved you perfectly. You'd seen him actually give his own life to save yours, to overcome evil with good and bring life into the dead places in our, in our lives. The lesson of Lazarus is counterintuitive if you're a skeptic because it says this, only after we believe do we start to catch a glimpse of God's plan or story. That's the order of things. God doesn't reveal his plan and, and say, do you, do you like this? What do you think? Do you want to buy it? No. <laughs> He's like, buy this. You buy this? In verse 40, Jesus actually answers Martha. He says, did I not tell you that what? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. In other words, he answers her if with an if question of his own. She's like, Jesus, if you'd been here, you'd see what I see. And he's like, Martha, if you believe in me, you will begin to see things from God's perspective. In Christianity, God says, it's only after you believe that I begin to actually reveal my plan and purposes. And folks, this is hard stuff to acknowledge, first off, our understanding is limited. And that secondly, that sometimes God uses painful stuff, seemingly random stuff in our lives to bring glory to himself. It could be cr- seem cruel, but catch this. Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. He stayed with him. He knew how painful it would be for them to lose their brother. And yet, he didn't respond. Why? Because he wanted more people. Why doesn't God come in right now, wipe out the whole thing? Because he wants more people to believe and receive eternal life. It's out of compassion. It's out of generosity. Why does, if God's all-powerful, why doesn't he just simply prevent death, cure, disease, and suffering? Give us a reason to believe, God. That's a good choice. But from an eternal perspective, his delay had a specific purpose. He has a very different agenda than us. And it's to reveal his power, perfect power, in imperfect lives. The raising of Lazarus was a crucial display of, of God's resurrection power. And that's the linchpin of the Christian faith. Because it says this, those who believe, Jesus not only raised himself from the dead, but he has the power to raise you too. To work resurrection good out of the wreckage of our lives. Do you believe this? Martha had a bold answer. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. She believed. In spite of what her eyes told her, her heart put its hope in Jesus Christ to save her, to save her brother and the world. And she believed because of who Jesus was and what he would do on the other side of death, that new life actually was waiting. So my grandfather's funeral was pretty strange. To say the least, surreal might be the better word. 
it was presided over by an elderly pastor who lives down in Tom's River, ministers to a lot of seniors, and I kid you not, his name was Pastor Strange. (laughs) And something strange happened at the funeral. He was presiding over it, but I drew the short straw. I was the one elected by my family to give the eulogy for my grandpa. Uh, everyone else was, was, was pretty broken up, obviously, over his, his passing, and so was I. But when I get upset, I get, like, really talkative. So they were just like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So I, so, I, so, I, so, I, you know, so I spent some time preparing, you know, looking over even some stuff my grandfather had written kind of in a journal as a kid and stuff. And I started searching for some scripture just to make sense of even what had happened. And, and when it came time, we had the service, and everyone's kind of shuffling in. And it's kind of, you know, just regular business down in, you know, when you live among, you know, retirement village there. And, and, and when I got up there, it was my turn to come up. It was like something came over me. It was more than emotion. I just, I just looked out and saw, and you just saw, because it, 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 it obviously had a lot of kind of, there were a lot of people who came because they had read or saw it on the news. And so more people came to the funeral. And so there's just these people all the way out the back. And, and something just kind of came over me, and I needed to let them know but not only was my grandfather who believed in Jesus, not only was he now with Jesus, but he believed, would have believed, that this was okay, that this was good, that it was part of God's redemptive plan somehow, that the random threads of our lives have some sort of meaning, and that if you are going through something, and I shared and da 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 and something started happening, people started crying in the back, and people it's kind of started moving, and it became very moving, and we kind of had to stop, and then Pastor Strange came up and said some things, whatever, and it was like over. And we stood by the door, and people started lining up, and just started shaking people's hands. And some of these couples who were like in their 70s says, we've been to a lot of funerals in the last few years. We've never heard anything like this. That there really is a God. It's not just pie in the sky, but there's a God who cares about the hurts. How can you have faith in the middle of that? I said, I have the faith my grandfather had. And and they kept talking and shaking hands. And what was amazing was Pastor Strange grabbed my hand. And this is where it got weird. (laughs) You know how it gets awkward when someone shakes your hand, but they don't want to let it go? You're trying to like, oh, thank you. Some of you do this. Okay, just let's acknowledge that. (laughs) Sorry, because you want to say something to him. You got to tell them something. And I'm, I'm shaking hands, and, I say, and he's, he's like, "I need to talk to you." I go, "Oh, thank you, Pastor Strange, for being." And she goes, "No, I want to talk to you right now." It's like, "Okay, just a minute." He goes, "Now," and he pulled me behind this curtain in the funeral home, and he held my hand, and he was a little shorter than me. He's looking up, and he just goes, "He goes, son, what do you do?" And I go, uh, what, what, do you, "What do you mean?" He goes, "What do you, what do you do? What do you do?" I, I was like, "Well, I'm a, a high school English teacher." He goes, "You need to quit that job and you need to become a preacher." Your grandfather always said you had a gift, and today we got to see some of that gift. There's a couple today who accepted Jesus for the first time, and they're going to be in eternity. Because of what happened today, you need to become a pastor. And it was really, it was more awkward than that. And it was, I was like, oh, well, you know, thank, thank you for that encouragement. No! <laughs> and it was on that third no where he took my hand and he likely looked through me. I had no interest in ministry. But that was the moment for my life. 
when I decided to become a pastor, that's why I'm your pastor today. I owe, I owe so much to my grandfather's life, but then some days I think I owe even more to his death. Because every thread is part of a larger story God's telling and inviting people to believe in and say, I want to be part of that story. What do you believe? I have a lot of questions for God. A lot. I can't wait to get to heaven and shoot them all off, but I, but I know God's not just going to give me simple answers, but he's going to show me, each of us, the tapestry he's been weaving the whole time and how whatever it is for you today and what you've been going through, not only how it fits together, but it's essential to his plan for healing not just your life, but the whole world. Your questions, your doubts, your hurts have meaning. They have purpose. God wastes nothing. An eternal purpose in God's plan. What do you believe? The Christian, it's not a religion. Christianity is Jesus inviting us to respond. Do you want to, like Martha, to respond in our heart and simply say, I believe. Put it back up there, Carol. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. That's what it means to believe, to become a Christian. It actually says, I don't have every answer. I don't have every question. I can be racked by doubts and, and everything doesn't make sense, but I'm putting my trust in you. I know I'm not God, but I want you to be my God. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you receive eternal life. And you have the guarantee that what happened to Lazarus will one day happen to you. Your life will not end in pain and sorrow and death and sense of tragedy because on the other side is Jesus who went through it, who is mighty to save, the power to redeem our hurts and work them for something glorious. This continuum of belief just isn't true. Agnostic, skeptic, doubter, believer, and now there are no more doubts. I'm, I'm not going to bluff you and tell you that once you become a Christian, all your questions will disappear. That'd be lying. I have a lot of questions and a lot of things cause it happen to doubt, but God doesn't promise to give us every answer this side of heaven. He just doesn't. What he does promise is to answer our questions with a question of our own. In spite of what you see, will you trust? Will you trust that I am working out of sight to weave all of the random pain and brokenness of your life into something beautiful? Do you believe in the resurrection? that one day it will make sense when I reveal everything from my perspective. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're just visiting with us. Maybe you've lost your faith. Maybe you've been holding out. Or maybe you think you need to have all your questions answered before you believe. It's not how it works. Jesus invites us to believe in the midst of our doubts and our struggles and our questions, not after they've been laid to rest. That is why it is called faith. Do you believe this? I want to invite everyone just to bow their head. You can talk to God. If something is stirring in you, that's not just emotion. It's not just me. That's God talking to you. And if you have never personally believed, said, I believe this. Jesus, I trust you. You can pray that to the God who is living, Jesus Christ. You can literally pray now. You can simply pray, Jesus, I believe. I believe 
that you are God and that you care. That you died and were raised to life to bring me to new life. And I want that life. Jesus, I thank you for every man and woman here now who stands at the the moment of belief, Father. It's nothing to be forced. It can only be your heart that responds. So, Father, through the power of your Spirit right now, confirm in people what your Spirit is whispering to them. Jesus, I pray for every man and woman who has suffered pains or losses and griefs in this life. Lord, that you breathe hope into them. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Every one of our faith is imperfect, but you are a perfect father. And we thank you for sending your perfect son through whom we have perfect salvation. In the name of Jesus, El said, amen. In two weeks, you're going to hear the best sermon you've ever heard because I'm not talking. You're going to hear from 25 people who have made the decision to believe and put their trust in Jesus as their God and Savior. And they're going to be baptized here. And um, they are not perfect people. They've got hurts. You're going to hear about people with hang-ups and hurt. Perfection is not required for a relationship with God. If you hear anything today, hear that. And some of their lives you're going to hear seem like this. But they believe. They've put their trust in Christ. And what's going to happen is they're going to walk out here in front of all of you in shorts and a t-shirt. And they're going to be baptized right here in front of us in a hot tub. Not all at once. <laughs> baptism is a symbol of, the, of crossing the line of belief. Literally, that's what baptism is. When you go under the water, you're identifying with Jesus' burial and death. And when they're raised up out of the water, that's a symbol of resurrection, of like being raised to new life, where the process starts, where their hurts and their habits and are, are begin to be healed and changed through new life by the power of God. And there are 25 people who are taking that step of faith on June 1st. The reason I'm telling you that is because preparing for today, I was struck with a very strong belief. I believe there are 25 to 50 more of you here today who need to be baptized. This is your moment. Maybe you've already believed, but you've never affirmed that in front of others. It's just everyone has a step of faith. Standing up here and saying, we're going to try to raise our, we're imperfect parents, we're going to try to raise this kid to the glory of God to serve Jesus. We need help. That's a commitment. That's what baptism is. And, and, and there's some of you that God's spoken to you today, and this is your moment where you don't have to have all the answers, but be baptized. You don't need perfect answers to begin your journey. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. That is awesome. That's because your parents love That doesn't cancel anything. All I'm saying is, as an adult, maybe you're saying, you know what? I am making the decision right now to believe for myself. It's my decision. It's not my parents. It's not anyone else's. It's personal. But I believe there are probably 25 to 50 more of you today who may take that step of faith. It's on the back of your connection card where it says, my next step from today's message is to get baptized. And you sign up, and we will baptize you right here on June 1st. It's going to be an incredible day because you will hear stories. Stories of people like Mary and Martha and Maggie who I will let tell you about why she believes and why she's being baptized.
When I became a teenager, I started to fall away. I didn't see God as a real source of love, and I started looking for love in all the wrong places. Drugs, drinking, promiscuity. I was a teenager, and these were the things that I found comforting, and it was so deceiving. There was one night in college when I had been up all night partying, and it was three or four o'clock in the morning, and I looked myself in the mirror before I was gonna go to sleep, and I didn't recognize myself. And I think I actually said out loud to myself, Maggie, you have to change. Something needs to be different. And it was that moment that I decided to see God for real this time. I opened my mouth and started crying and just pouring my heart out to God and just asking for forgiveness and to, to love me again after all that I had done and how I just had fallen away and had been so ungrateful for, for his love and for everything that he does for us. And that really to me was, was my cleansing moment. And that was the time when I knew that God had given me a second chance and that there was so much power in the Holy Spirit and it was so real to me. And out came the song of the redeemed. baptized this coming June means just a, a chance to really make my decision to follow God public and for the whole community and for the world to see that this is real and it's exciting and it's not like this is the moment where my life will be changed because that's already happened for me but this is just a chance a chance to do it before everybody and just to say that this is officially me coming to God and saying, Lord, I'm ready to be yours. You 